This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers talks about the truth and beauty of marriage. This recording is being used with permission. And now, here's Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. I'm glad we talk about marriage. It's one of the favorite things I love to talk about. And even though I travel about 150,000 miles a year, I still have responsibilities in my parish. And one of those responsibilities is marriage preparation. In our parish, here's how it works. The young lady, you know, they, they get engaged and she goes, Father, look, look, Lorraine, look, Father, look, he, he proposed. Oh, everybody's happy. Oh, wonderful. And they start, Father, when, let's start to get a date. Let's have a, he goes, oh, oh, oh. Go see the deacon. Because <laughs> in our parish, if they don't get past me, they don't get married. Why is that? See, in our parish, we truly believe that we must prepare couples to receive a sacrament of the Holy Catholic Church and not to look good for pictures. We take it very seriously. And so when that couple comes to see me for the first time and we sit down, we have a little small talk, everybody's fun, and, and I ask a question that I think is pretty simple. Why are you getting married? And of course, they say what? We're in love. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I'm in love with a lot of people, but I'm not going to marry them. So why are you getting married? Uh, uh, we're, uh, uh, we're compatible. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> if I take my iPhone and plug a USB cable into my computer, they're compatible too, but they're not getting married. So why are you getting married? Uh, uh, well, here's what somebody told me last summer. Because we finish each other's sentences. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> if you're basically married, it's on a crossword puzzle. And not many couples are able to give me the answer. So I let them stew a little bit, but here's the answer. I said, the reason why you're here is because you believe with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul that the person sitting next to you is the person that God has placed in your life to help you get to heaven. That's why you're here. Oh, yeah, oh. We need to do a better job of preparing couples for a lifetime. And so I want to share with you today in this first talk kind of the understanding of the beauty of marriage. Now, as you go through life, like say for you're a single guy, right? You go through life, and for a single guy, often life is like an amusement park. You go through the amusement park of life and you're trying the cotton candy and you're playing a few of the games. And as you go through the amusement park of life, you look at the roller coaster of marriage. And you say, there's no way I'm riding that. And you keep walking until you meet her. <laughs> now you're both walking through the amusement park of life and as you stroll past the roller coaster of marriage, she looks over, hey, I might want to ride that one day. You, you want to ride that? Yeah. I said, well, 
<laughs> well, I never really thought about writing that, but if I'm with you, it might be okay. And then as, the, as you get to know each other, as time goes by, you're getting closer and closer and closer to the roller coaster of marriage. And then finally, the ring goes on. Bam, now you're in the queue. And as you make your way through the queue, you know, you do your pre-Cana weekend and you do your uh, personality inventory and you get the cake and you do all the preparation, the readings and all the music, you get all the stuff together and finally the big day comes. You get into that car. You sit down, the bar comes down, boom, you're married. Then the ride starts. Now at first, nice and slow. Hey, this ain't so bad. You know, nice view. Everything's nice and slow, everything. And then you reach that first hill, and all of a sudden, whoosh. And it's running, and it's twisting, and it's turning, and it's up, and it's down. You cross that first, whoosh, you get pregnant. You go around that another turn, whoosh, you lose the baby, like my wife and I did. Whoosh, you get a great promotion at your job. Whoosh, now you have to relocate. Whoosh, you get pregnant. Whoosh, you have a baby. Whoosh, mom has a stroke. Who's going to take care of her? And it's up, and it's down, and it's twisting, and it's turning, and it's thrilling, and it's scary, all at the same time. And when does the ride end? When is the ride over? The roller coaster of marriage, when is the ride over? When one of you dies, not before. If you try to jump out of a moving roller coaster, you can get hurt. That's called divorce. I am a child of divorce. My parents had a horrible marriage. In fact, I'm still surprised that my mother stayed married to my father for as long as she did. I get asked by young people, Deacon, what is it like when your parents are divorced? They ask me that because young people are very perceptive. They can see that there's an issue between mom and dad, even though you're not talking to them about it. They can sense it. And they see that this may be heading toward an end, so they want to know how they're going to be affected. So I tell them, I said, marriage is a beautiful thing, <laughs> but it's also the cross. And divorce is when the parents put the cross down and the kids pick it up. That is a place that you don't ever want to be, especially if you have children. I can tell you that from experience. So what we want to do today is to talk about the great gift that marriage is. So the first question we need to ask is what kind of relationship does God want with us? What kind of relationship? Now, God does want a relationship. This is very beautifully shown, especially in baptism. Think about it. For us as Catholics, most of our rites start off with what? No, no, no. How does the rite start off? Like Mass. How would you start today? Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not baptism. 
When you get ready to do a baptism, everything's ready. Okay, ready, go. What's the first thing? Not the sign of the cross. What's the very first thing? A question. What name do you give this child? Interesting way to start. Why? Because God wants to know what is he going to call that child for the rest of that child's existence. Think about it. God wants a relationship with us. And so the first thing in baptism we recognize is what's your name? If, I, if you don't know me and I walk up to you and I extend my hand, what's the first thing you say? What's your name? My name is Deacon Howe. What? You get to know your name. That's how you start to know someone. So, that's, so what we ask what kind of relationship does God want with us. Jesus tells us we must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> now how are we going to do that? It almost seems as Jesus gives us this impossible mandate. Be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. But that's exactly what he means. The word in Greek is teleos, which means mature. And in the Hebrew, means mature or whole and complete. So we are to be mature and whole and complete in our faith. How do we do that? Simply by being the person that God created us to be. And so how do we find who that person is? We don't have to go far. We open up your Bible to page one, where we read in verse 26, chapter one of Genesis, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And Okay, well, let's stop there for a second. Then God said. Isn't that interesting? God speaks to us. <laughs> now this said, this spoken word that comes forth from the mouth of God would become who in the fullness of time? Jesus Christ. How do we know that's true that we're not making it up? John's gospel, the prologue. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made and verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us so God the father speaks the word and what does he have to say let us now, last time I counted, how many gods are there? One. So what's this us business? If there's one, if there's one God, who then he said, let us. Who's us? The Trinity. Now we have God the Father speaking the word. Where's the Holy Spirit? See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We're on verse 26. You want the Holy Spirit... Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And look at verse 3, and God said. So God the Father speaks the word through the Spirit. Everything comes into being and existence. If anybody asks you where the Trinity is in Scripture, Page one. So God the Father speaks the word through the Spirit, 
and what does he have to say? Let us make man. You know, I get sick and tired of the stupid political correctness that we hear at Mass, at least in the States. I don't know what you hear, but in the States, sometimes they change the words because they're trying to be politically correct and not hurt women's feelings. Like in the Creed, they say, by, now we use the, the uh, Nicene Creed. And the long, he says, by the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. But what they'll say is he became one of us. Or he became a human being. Now, what's the problem with that? The thing is, what do you have to add to that or else you have a problem? They use the word man for a specific reason. If you say one of us or you say a human being, what must you add or else you have a problem? He was like us or human being except for sin. If you don't add that, you have a problem. The reason why they use man, because the word in Hebrew is Adam. And Adam has the sense of the fullness of humanity. Humanity in its fullness. How do we know it's true that we're not making it up? Keep reading. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Ish and Ishah. So out of Adam, out of the fullness of humanity comes Ish and Isha, male and female differentiated. But Adam has a sense of the wholeness. Now before we go on, I just want it, to, it's very important words here. Made in our image after our likeness. Now the words image and likeness are very important. Let's first look at first image. Image is a word that they use in the Hebrew. It means literally a shadow that is the outline or representation of the original. The shadow that is the outline or representation of the original. So what does that mean? So for example, uh, I'm standing up here and I'm in the light and I'm casting a shadow. Now, is the shadow me? No, it's the outline of me. But yet, when I move my arm, the shadow moves its arm. If I move my leg, the shadow moves its leg. Now, how does that work in our relation to God? Are we God? No. But God's shadow, his outline, is imprinted onto our souls. How do we know that's true? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, did you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit that you have from God? So we're not God, but we have God's shadow, his outline, his image imprinted onto our souls. So what does that mean? Just like when you move, the shadow moves. When we speak, God speaks. When we think, God thinks. When we love, God loves. That's the sense of what the scriptures, what God is saying to us through the scriptures. And it's a masculine noun, by the way. Now we look at likeness. Uh, the word image is uh, selem in the Hebrew. 
The word likeness is uh, demuth, a feminine noun. And demuth means similar. But here's the sense. If someone created a, a Deacon Harold statue, and they put the statue on one side of me, and I have my son, Benjamin, and I put Benjamin on the other side of me, both the statue and my son are in my likeness. In fact, the statue probably looks more like me than my son. Here's the difference. My son has my essence, my nature, my being, in Greek, my usia, my stuff is in my son. So even though the statue looks more like me, my son is much more in my likeness. Peter talks about this when he talks about us having the divine nature within us. So even the words themselves, image and likeness, show the reality of man and woman, male and female, he created them. Equal, right from the beginning. Equal, but not the same. See, we live in a culture that looks us in the face and lies to us and says that in order to be equal, you have to be the same. So unless men are doing what women do and women are doing what men do, then nobody's equal. <clears throat> Wrong answer. Why? Now, this is my third time here, and I hope that your new archbishop doesn't ban me from what I'm about to say now. But I came here to preach the truth. You ready? Men and women are different. Thanks be to God! We're different physically, emotionally, spiritually. We're different. There's a fundamental and intrinsic unity within the complementarity of our being. What makes me a man and what makes a woman a woman, those gifts perfect and complement each other. And it's when those gifts are brought together that defines what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. In fact, it's precisely because of those differences that we're able to have unity. Precisely because of those differences that we're able to have unity. So now God takes love, because what does 1 John 4.16 say? God is love, and he who lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. Beautiful. So God takes love, which is very essence, is very nature is love. He pours that into man, Adam. He creates male and female in his image and likeness. What's the very first thing that God does? Verse 28, and God blessed them. So even before God speaks to them, it says that God blessed them. What is he doing there? They get married. They enter into a covenant relationship with God. That's what a blessing between a man and a woman is called marriage, which we seem to be confused about today. Now, our culture says that relationships between people are contractual. They're contracts, not covenants. Contracts, not covenants. That's where we get friends with benefits. Hit it and quit it. And all the garbage language that our young people use to describe relationships between themselves where they treat each other as objects for pleasure and gratification. When God wants to establish a relationship with us, he does not establish a contract, he establishes a covenant. 
A contract is an exchange of goods. You can buy a cell phone or a mobile. You can buy a coffee. You can buy, and there's a contract for a specified amount of consideration, cash, trade, something of equal value. You're supposed to get something back that has a certain characteristics to it. And if, that, if you don't meet the contract, then the contract is over. If you get your coffee and they put tea instead of coffee, that wasn't what the contract says. You get your money back or you get a coffee. That's what they say relationships are like, and it's not. God establishes a covenant. A contract is an exchange of goods. This is yours and this is mine. A covenant is an exchange of persons. I am yours and you are mine. It's making a complete and total gift of yourself to someone. And someone makes a complete and total gift of themselves back to you in love that is free and faithful and total and fruitful. It is a love that gives everything. It is a love that holds nothing back because Jesus held nothing back of his love for us from the cross. He gave everything. And he expects us to do the same. Intimate, personal, loving, and life-giving communion. That's what Jesus came to bring us, to draw us deeply into the heart of the life of God himself. That's what covenant really... Look, look at what Jesus says himself at the Last Supper. This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal contract. Is that what he says? Covenant. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying and chose his words very carefully because he knew they had eternal consequences. He enters into covenant relationship with us. Now, after establishing the covenant, God speaks to us for the first time. And what does he say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Notice he doesn't ask them, hey guys, since you're in this covenant now, do you mind having a few babies? Would that be too much trouble for you to ask? That's not how, see, the, the way God gives commands is three ways. This one is called an apodictic command. A very, he doesn't ask, he says, this is what you're going to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which means what? Have sex and have kids. <gasps> Deacon, you said se look, 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 look. We've taken, see, God could have done anything he wanted to to bring us into the world. We could have hatched out of an egg. We could have dropped out of the sky. We could have grown out of the ground, but no. God allows us to participate in his ability to give new life. Because we don't create anything. The word in Hebrew for create is bara. The only subject of that verb, the only person that creates the entire Bible is who? God. We don't create. We co-create with God. So what does that mean? That sex comes from God. That means it's a gift. That means it's sacred and it's holy because it comes to us from God. But what we've done in this culture is twisted it and distorted it and perverted it and changed it into a consumer product. We spend $3,000 a second on pornography in the United States turning women into whores for our pleasure and gratification. 
Never mind contraception, abortion, sterilization, where you cut yourself off like a dog because you've bought into the lie of overpopulation. There's no overpopulation problem. Do the math. For example, the United States, our, one of our biggest states is Texas. If you take the square footage of Texas, the entire state of Texas, you divide that by the population of the world, you can get from UNICEF or United Nations website. Every single person in the world, if you group them into groups of three, can live in their own houses in the state of Texas. That leaves the whole rest of the world. So where's the overpopulation problem? Instead of educating ourselves, we buy into the lie. And we wonder why there's not enough kids in our Catholic schools. I've been to countries where they're paying people, couples, to have additional children. You get a government subsidy for every additional child that you have. Because the governments have said, if we don't get our population rate up, if we don't get, build our replacement rate, our economy is going to tank and never recover. So God has a plan. Now, God doesn't say have as many kids as you possibly can. I mean, the church doesn't teach that. The church will never teach that. It's a potential decision of parents of how many children they can have. But if we are to build, truly build, a culture of life, because we're all living in a culture of death, euthanasia, assisted suicide, then we need to be open to the fullness of the gifts that God has given us to truly live the reality of what it means to be made in his image and likeness. So if we flip to the second creation story quickly, and that starts at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed man, there's our word again, <laughs> the Lord formed man of dust of the ground. Now it said Adam is, means man, but the word for dirt or soil is Adamah. So see, Adam is a play on the word Adamah for dirt or soil. Because remember, what's going on here? He takes from the dust and he creates man. We remember this in a beautiful way in the Catholic Church. When? Ash Wednesday. Put the ashes on your head. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this reality here of being created from the dust, from the soil, we remember that every Ash Wednesday. Here's the beautiful part. He created him from dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The word for breathing life is ruah. He breathed the life of the Holy Spirit into us. Do we act as if that even matters? Do we even care? Of all the ways that God creates, he only creates by breathing the scriptures twice. This is the first time. Anybody can tell me where the second time is? That God creates by breathing? John, no, John chapter 20. Remember, he, it's the day of the resurrection. He's in the room with the ten apostles. Why there are ten? Judas killed himself, and Thomas wasn't there. And he comes in, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed. The same, if you look at the Septuagint, it's the same exact word for breathing life. He breathed the Holy Spirit. And what did he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. And he gave them direct authority to forgive sins in his name through the power of that same Holy Spirit. Which does what? Bring us back to life from the death of mortal sin. We have God's life within us. 
So what does God then do? Now, in the second creation story, man is depicted as male. But don't worry, ladies, relief is coming. He says he took the man and put him, verse 15, he put him in the garden of Eden to till and to keep it. Wow, he made him the gardener. Isn't that great? I don't think so. <laughs> the word for till is abad. That means a work that's in the form of a service. And to keep is shamar, which means to protect and defend. So what the Lord was doing was giving him his mission, his clarion call. This is your purpose. I'm placing you as my steward in the garden. Why? Because the Lord God is the landlord. We're just the stewards. And he says, your job is to serve, protect, and defend everything I am entrusting to you. So he puts him in the garden. He makes him the steward. And he gives part of his divine authority to man to serve, protect, and defend. Now, things were real easy in the garden. No Ten Commandments back then. Oh, no. Just one. So the Lord said, in face says, the Lord God commanded the man. Here's that same apodictic command, commanded the man. You may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall die. Now what's the deal with the tree? Why is it even there? What's the purpose? Now first of all this, it says he may freely eat, which means what? We have free will, which makes sense in covenant relationship. For example, do you know me? You don't know me, do you? I don't know who you are, right? If you were walking out on the street and I just walked up to you and I said, I'm going to marry you, there's nothing you can do about it. What are you going to do? You're not there. What are you going to do? You're going to run really fast away from me. You're going to pull out your mobile and call the police. Some big black guy from the States is saying, get here quick. And then they're going to get here and they're going to say, get on the ground. Get do they have guns here? Do the cops have guns here? They do? They're going to pull out their gun. Get on the ground. Get on the, right? Now, is that love? No. Why? Because it's not free. Love that's freely given has to be freely reciprocated or else it's not love. Remember we talked about the four characteristics of covenant relationship? What's the first one? Free, faithful, total, and fruitful. The first one is free. So God says you're free to eat everything in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We need to take a break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more from Deacon Harold Burke Sivers on the truth and beauty of marriage. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, the truth and beauty of marriage with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Deacon Harold begins by talking about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Now, why is the tree even there? A couple of different reasons. See, why, one of the reasons why I love being Catholic, we have something called polyvalent meaning. 
We have different levels or layers of meaning for, for things that we believe. So, for example, the tree. The tree was a physical representation of God's authority. Remember, God is a landlord. We're just the stewards. But sometimes when you get put in charge of things, sometimes you forget. <laughs> you think you're the boss. You think you're in charge, even of our own lives. Well, we have to remember he's in charge. So the tree is simply a physical reminder of the reality that even though you're free and you're in charge, serve, protect, and defend, that tree is a reminder that God said, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> but what else does the tree represent? Remember, it's not just any tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Jews had two different words for knowledge. One was da'af. And da'af is factual knowledge. Two plus two is four. The earth goes around the sun. I'm black, okay? I mean, that's just reality, right? That's factual knowledge. That's not the word they use for the knowledge of good and evil. They use the word yauda. And yauda means knowledge that is gained by experience. You have to experience something in order to know it. So, for example, when the twins, I have four beautiful children, and they're teenagers now. <laughs> so, life is interesting at home. Three girls and one boy. And, the, and they're twins. So, my twins are a boy and a girl. So, when the twins were about four years old, they were going to help daddy cook dinner one night. And so, they, you know how the, the kids have their stools? You know, they push their little... They pushed their little stools up, and they climbed up on the stools. And Sophia, my daughter, was on one side by the cutting board, the prep preparation table. But my son was by the stove, by the fire. And I said, son, the stove is hot, buddy. Watch daddy. Woo! Ouchies! Woo! Ow! See, it's hot. Don't touch it, buddy. It's hot, okay? Ouchies. Don't touch Okay. So I turn around to help Sophia pour some flour, and I look around. What's Benjamin doing? His hand is going toward the stove. So I whip around, and I grab his hand, and I pull it back. Now, he didn't actually touch the flame, but he got close enough where he felt the heat. Ow! I said, see, man, I tried to tell you, man, the stove is hot. Because after having three girls, I realized with boys that sometimes they're slow to pick up on things. And often boys have to experience something in order to know it. Don't put your hand in the electrical socket. Okay. Ah! Oh, I won't do that again. So you have to experience something in order to know it. So what is going back to the tree now? Was the tree itself evil? No. Because the scriptures are clear. Everything God creates is good. The evil comes in when man uses his free will to say no to God's invitation to love and life. See, God did not want man to experience evil. But because man is free to enter into this covenant relationship with God, which means what? You're free to say yes or you're free to say no. God did not want us to say no. God is saying, here's the tree. You're free to choose. 
I love you. I want you to remain in my love. I always want you to choose me. But if you make a different choice, then you will die. Not I'm going to kill you because God doesn't take his life. But if he freely chooses, and what is that act of choosing? Eating the fruit from the tree. If you do that, the Lord is very clear. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And the word is mavet in Hebrew. It only doesn't mean physical death. It means to cut yourself off from God's life. To cut yourself off from the life of God. That's a consequence for choosing that which is not of God. Now, what is his response? Nothing. Got it. Good to go. But see, <laughs> I know one reason why I really love God. He's extremely wise. The very next thing that God says in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Why not? He's got it pretty good in his Garden of Eden, even man cave. Think about it. No one could take the remote from him. He's all by himself. No one could tell him what to do. No honeydew list. You know, there's no... He's good. But why is it not good for him to be alone? Hmm? Mm -mm. Think about it. Didn't we already say that we are made in God's image and likeness? Does not God himself exist as a family? As a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So man by himself makes no sense. Why? Because if we are truly being God's image and likeness, then the family on earth must be the image of the family in heaven. So just as the Father gives love to the Son, and the Son gives love to the Father, the love between the Father and Son is so intense that it gives life to another person, the Holy Spirit, who gives love and life back to the Father and the Son. That's called the circumcession. That's a fancy word. Circumcession of the Trinity. On earth, we have fathers and mothers, and the love is so intense between the two of them that it gives life to a third children, who then give their love and life back to their parents. So it's not, obviously, it's not the father, it's not the father, the son, it's not, you know, the woman and the Holy Spirit's not, the, but the idea of three become one and they share love and life, the family. The two, the three are one family sharing love and life. So, of course, he makes no sense by himself. See, in his original solitude, when he's by himself, he realizes that I'm superior to all the other creatures that God created because he put me in charge of them. He can know himself, he's conscious and aware of himself, and he can know God, but he's got nobody to share it with. He's got no one to share his experience and knowledge of God with. So what does God say? So I will make a helper fit for him. Oh, isn't that nice? Now, ladies, helper does not mean maid, does not mean cook, does not mean someone who picks up after me, someone who drives the kids around to football and to soccer and to all the different activities. That's not what that means. The word that they use is actually a compound word in Hebrew, ezer konegdo, help mate. Ezer konegdo. 
When the Jewish people used those two words together, it meant someone who stands opposite or parallel to you, who helps, aids, assists, surrounds, protects, and defends in battle. God wanted to create a battle partner for him. Because what is the battle going to be against? Sin and death. So God sets about to establish this battle partner for the man who's going to stand by his side and fight. So what does God do first? I will, uh, so God, out of the ground, God, the Lord ground formed every beast of the field and bird of the air. So he's trying to find a helper for the guy. Okay, he said, how about this thing right here? How about this? Koala. Uh, no, Lord, no. Uh, how about how about this right here, kangaroo? How about, huh? Uh, no, Lord, I'm not feeling that. What about what about this thing here? Tas- I was in Hobart yesterday. Tasmanian devil. What about this right here? No, Lord, I'm not feeling that. Nah. So after all that, what does it say? Yet for the man, there is not found a helper fit for him. And we're doing the same thing in our culture today. By this redefinition of marriage, we're trying to find helpers that are not fit for us. Now, notice I did not say gay marriage. I said the redefinition of marriage, of which gay marriage is only a part. Because the issue is, for example, in France, a woman attempted to marry a bridge that cars drive over, and the mayor of the town presided at the ceremony. I live in Portland, Oregon. Three hours north of us in Seattle, a woman attempted to marry her apartment building. A guy in California attempted to marry a cat. A woman in Missouri, the state of Missouri in the States, tried to marry herself, and the judge allowed it. Imagine fights in that family. So we're, talk, we're not talking about just a gay, we're talking the redefinition of marriage, which is dangerous. Because what is marriage? It's always been understood since way before the Bible, since the beginning of recorded history, which anthropologists have studied, that the relationship between a man and a woman and any children they have together as the center, the source, the core, the foundation of culture, society, and civilization. It's a public institution because it has a public benefit for everyone, even for people who are not married. That's why when they created tax laws, they gave special tax breaks and incentives for married couples so they could continue to support that relationship, which is the center, the core, the foundation of culture and society, and is always in the best interest of children. What they're trying to redefine it as is a relationship between two people who love each other. Notice in that definition, nothing about children and zero benefit to society. Because we live in a society that's turned in on itself. It's not about kenosis, self-giving, self-sacrificing love, always looking to what's best for the other. The society always looks at what's best for me. Because the culture worships the Trinity too. Me, myself, and I. And that redefinition of marriage has no... It's a private, personal lifestyle choice. 
If somebody wants to do that, that's their business. The government has no business interfering in someone's personal lifestyle decision. Marriage is not that, because marriage is a benefit to, pub, to all of us, public, society, culture, civilization. Man, say, what about rights? Deacon, you're black. In the 50s and 60s, your people were oppressed in the United States with Jim Crow laws and segregation. We're just trying to give people rights. And I said, it's apples and oranges. I said, being black is not a personal lifestyle choice. Being black doesn't change the definition of marriage between one man and one woman and any children they have together as the center culture, center foundation of life, culture, civilization, and society. But what about children? They have a right to children. No, children are not commodities that can be traded or bought or sold, except if you're Planned Parenthood, which they're in that business right now, if you see the videos that have been coming out from the States, selling dead children's body parts for profit. But yet they say they're not really people. They're not really the blobs of tissue. Every right, child has a right to a mother and a father. They say, well, what about your situation, Deacon? And all the other situations, the different kinds of families we have today. Those families exist because of sad and tragic circumstances. My mother didn't marry my father. Boy, I can't wait for him to start drinking and cheating on us and hating us and doing all. She didn't say that when she got married. People don't get married saying, boy, I can't wait for my husband to die of cancer so I can be by myself raising these kids. Those types of families happen because of sad and tragic circumstances, not by design. Because every child, what every child has a right to is to a mother and a father. And yet, there was not a helper fit for him. So the same, that's why I start off with Genesis. Even though this is thousands of years old, it tells our story today. So what does God do now? He, the guy goes to sleep. He takes out a rib. He doesn't start over again with another lump of clay. He takes a rib. He builds up the woman. The guy wakes up. Ugh. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Woo! And he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But what's going on here? First of all, why did he use a rib? But what side of the body is the heart mostly on? The left side. The word of God doesn't say what side he took the rib from. It could have been either side. So why a rib? No, here's the deal. If he uses a bone from the lower part of the body, she'd be less than him. If he used a bone from the upper part of the body, she'd be greater than him. He used a rib from the side to show that she's equal to him. Equal right from the beginning. Didn't we already talk about that? See, people say the two Genesis stories contradict each other. No, they don't. They're expressing the reality in two different ways. Through the rib from the side, show that she's equal to him. Equal, but not the same. So when he sees her, he sees someone that completes him that perfects him, that perfectly complements him, that he can yawda, that he can experience God with. And how does he react when he sees her? He doesn't say, man, she's hot. He looks upon her, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is the greatest of my bone. She is the greatest of my flesh. She is the greatest part of who I am. She's my equal. 
That's what he's saying. It's almost as if they look at each other for that first time. And he looks into her eyes and he says, myself. And she looks back at him and she says, my source. That's covenant relationship. And he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He recognizes that their differences is exactly what brings them unity. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Not one person. You know, sometimes, when, especially when young people are in love, they say things like, I lost myself in him. I lost myself in her. And I look at those couples, I say, you better find yourself. When you are in a relationship of covenant love and intimacy, you don't lose anything of what you've been given by God. You don't lose yourself. You find yourself. Because that other person that you're in covenant relationship with, your spouse, your wife, your husband, helps you to become more of the person who God created you to be. Not less. Your husband or your wife helps you to become more of the person who God created you to be. We even say this in the secular culture. Even secular culture recognizes this. What do we say? She brings out the, she brings out the best in me. Help you to become more of who God created you to be. And notice it's one flesh. Love and life. One flesh union. Now think about this. What is the deepest form of intimacy we can have with God on this earth? The Eucharist. The only other time you'll be that close to God is when you're dead and you're standing before him for the particular judgment. That's the next time you'll be that close to God on earth. It is the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the most blessed sacrament of the altar. And what is the high point of mass? When we dare to get off those benches, those chairs, and walk forward to receive Jesus. Because remember, covenant relationship, the deepest form of intimacy is covenant relationship. Jesus did his part of the covenant right here. He did his part. Now he's waiting for us to do our part. So what do we do? When we dare to get up, what are we saying when we're walking towards Jesus? What, what, what is that action of getting up and walking towards Jesus saying? We're saying, Lord, I love you more than anyone or anything in this world. I love you so much that I want you to create your life in me. That's what we're saying every time we come forward to receive Jesus. And then he, we give ourselves to him by walking forward, and he gives himself to us. And the two become one flesh. In a sense, we're like the Blessed Virgin Mary. We're pregnant with Jesus. We have his life in us. That's the, now, so what does this mean here? In seed form, in seed form, is in, in symbol, marriage is Eucharistic. Loving, life-giving intimacy and communion that a husband and wife share is, is a Eucharistic type of act. 
Beautiful. And what's, and what's the last line? Therefore, a man leaves his father up, and the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. They're standing naked in front of each other and are not ashamed of each other's bodies. Why? Because they're seeing each other the way God sees them. They're looking at each other through God's eyes. What they see is what God sees. Beautiful. We just spent, I think, an hour going over one page of the Bible. The Bible could have been the shortest book in the history of the world. Instead, we got all the rest of this, which is what? How we messed it up and how Jesus had to come save us. That's all the rest of the Bible is. So what happened? Everything's great. God's plan. Very short, very clear. What happens? Who shows up in Genesis 3? Uh, Satan, the snake. Hmm. And notice, out of all the things that God created, not who, but what does Satan go after first? No, not who, what does Satan go after first? Covenant relationship. He goes after the family. Now, who in the family does he go after first? The woman. Why her? He goes after her for one reason. St. John Paul II, in a document called Mulieris Dignitatem, on the dignity and vocation of women, he says this, in God's eternal plan, it is woman in whom the order of love in the created world of persons first takes root. What does that mean? In God's mind from all eternity, when he planned to take love, and we already established that God is love, he implants that love into both male and female. But what the Holy Father is saying is that love took root, established a home, formed a foundation within the heart of the woman in a very special way. Women are the very heart of God's love. Because by the very nature of how God created a woman, whether she's eight or whether she's 80, whether she has children or becomes a nun, religious, by the very nature of how God created her, she is a life giver and a life bearer. Because she participates in the intimacy of the Holy Spirit in a way that we men just can't. You know, I always remember this reality in the creed, because again, we pray the long form in the U.S. Credo et spiritus sanctus, dominum et vivificantem. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. That's what a woman participates in. And Satan knew that. So he says to himself, if I can destroy that, everything else will fall. And guess what? He was right. Thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Please tune in next week for another episode of One Body Stewarding God's Creation. 
If today you hear His voice, harden not your hearts.